I live a pretty crazy life, so. Welcome back to What You'll Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Stephen Joseph Jones. We just spoke to uh, Joel Bacardi. You, you had two middle names. Yeah, now I've got my middle name and then I've got my Christian name, which is Joseph. Yeah. And my middle name is Stephen. Yeah, but it's not about me today, it's about Joel. Joel, we just spoke to Joel, the author of The Corporation, which was a book as well as a movie. He also wrote a book, uh, Childhood Under Siege, which mm. was cool. So we talked... Uh, a fair bit about the corporation, but we went pretty deep, I reckon, uh, into both the corporation and then how businesses target children. Yeah, and just essentially, you know, the systems we have in the world and how they fuck us. <laughs> yeah, mate, it's yeah, it's fucked. <laughs> that's all I can say. And he's, I think he's coming out. They're redoing the corporation, the corporation too. So that's going to deal with some next level deep shit, I reckon, fifteen yeah. years down the track. Yeah, it was good stuff. Another one of those books where. You, you're, in my opinion, better off not being ignorant and you're better off learning about how the actual world works and yeah. why we're potentially on Stay the work. verge of environmental collapse. Yeah. Well, that's... Yeah. That's essentially oh. it. Mate, it was, it's, it's probably hard to hear for the first time, but it's worth hearing. Mate, we should make Joel, Joel for president and prime minister. If Joel ran the world... Could you fix sweet. it? Maybe Mate, it's it. not fixable. I guess just to um, to kick it off, we, we obviously read the book, The Corporation. We did our own sort of 20, 25-minute uh, recap of the, the best stuff. We watched the, the movie again last night as a bit of a refresher. I guess just to start it off, who were some of the the biggest and baddest corporations out there? We, we saw some wild stuff happening on the, on the movie that just seemed so um, extreme, so full-on. Yeah. So, yeah, we looked in the movie at a number of companies, Monsanto and, and you know, General Electric, Pfizer. I mean, you can go through the whole list and you can say, oh, this corporation has done a bad thing over there or that corporation's done a bad thing over there. But I think the whole point of the movie and certainly the point of all of my work um, leading up to it and since is that it's not so much a question of, you know, who's the bad guy and who's the good guy. But it's a question of the fact that the form of the corporation itself, the legal form of the publicly traded corporation, uh, requires that directors and managers always put self-interest, the interest, the financial interest of the shareholders above everything else. And so that incentivizes them to do bad things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you can you can find examples, but... In a way, the whole point of the project was to say it's not about saying, you know, these guys are all right and these guys aren't. It's about saying what happens when we create this legal structure and then basically let it loose on the world. And that's what we were trying to show in the film and in the book. Yeah. So, so you mentioned it's not really necessarily the corporations themselves' fault. It might be the actual system as a whole's fault. But before we get into it, a bit more of the nitty-gritty, what are some of the... I guess, environmental disasters and things. What, what are some of the things that are happening as a result of, of the system before we, I guess, delve into um, the actual specific problems? Well, I mean, I think when we look at um, what's been happening, for example, in terms of uh, dangerous weather uh, lately and climate change, and we look at the long history of, uh, of denial 
of climate change by major petrochemical companies, of, of discrediting science, of lobbying for um, uh, for governments not to take this threat seriously, um, of pr- of promoting and creating counter science or so-called science that said, oh, it's not really a problem. Uh, and I think, you know, you look at the, the place that we're at today, you look at the, the, the heavy weight of scientific opinion, um, and there's a very direct link between all of that denying and a situation that, that may be irreversible. Um, so that would that would be a big one for me. Um, you know, you can look at specific things that have happened since the film came out. Uh, Volkswagen's emission scandal, which of course relates to climate change. BP's explosion in the Gulf of Mexico, again, uh, nearly destroying the Gulf of Mexico. The Rana Plaza collapse in, in Bangladesh. I mean, all of these um, are were preventable in effect, but were the consequence of, of companies putting profit above concerns about safety, above concerns about health, the environment, and so on. But I think if we're looking at kind of uh, two existential or three existential threats in the world today, uh, one of them would be climate change. I think another would be the growing um, uh, gap between those who have resources to live secure lives and everybody else, uh, the 99 and the 1%, so-called, um, and, uh, and nuclear holocaust. I mean, those are, you know, those are kind of the, the three arguably potentially world-ending threats that we face today. And the first two of them, I think, uh, you know, I'm not going to say corporations are entirely responsible for, but the system that we've had, of, um, of, of creating these entities that have no ability to be concerned about anything but wealth creation has contributed mightily uh, to at least the climate change piece and the inequality piece. The nuclear piece, I think, is more complicated, but not disconnected. Mm-hmm. That's wild. You've already, you've already got me got me worried now. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Um, in the in the book, the corporation, you talk about how you line up the, I guess, the, almost the definition of a of a psychopath, and how you know these big corporations, almost by design, have these sort of built in as some of the things you talk about. How you know pursuing profit at all costs, denial of responsibility, refusal to you know accept this responsibility, uh, and just there's always externalizing costs. Um, I guess. Well, why is why is it such? Is it is it just because they are just so relentless in their pursuit of profit that they forget about everything else? Well, you know, I think we have to distinguish um, business markets uh, from the particular way that business is done and markets are run. Um, if you go back and read Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, he wrote it, I think, in seventeen seventy six, and it's seen as, in many ways, the the Bible of capitalism, the the sort of great moral uh, defense of a capitalist system. And when you look at what he says about corporations, it's quite interesting. He hated them. He thought they were a very bad idea. His idea of capitalism was, uh, he talked about, you know, the the baker, the candlestick maker, small-scale business, basically. Um, And the corporations at the time that were sort of the large companies at the time, he looked at them and he said, you know, they are simply going to create negligence and profusion. Um, that Those were the words that he used. And the reason for that, 
he said, and people have been saying since, is that the structure of the corporation basically makes it very hard to hold anybody accountable for what corporations do to society and the environment, while providing a very effective machine for creating wealth. And so a lot of people say, so should we have no corporations? My argument is the corporation is a very effective mechanism for pooling the large amounts of capital that we need to do big things in society, whether it's, you know, build railways, which is why they were first invented, or it's run internet services or, or whatever you want to do. If you need a lot of money, which you didn't back in the 17th century, because you just had a mill on a river, so you could get a few guys together and, and they could invest their money. But if you need to be able to, to draw capital from millions of people in the form of their buying shares, you need this particular form. So I think it's very good at doing that and it serves an important purpose in society. But we've become deluded to believe that, uh, wow, it's so great. We don't need to regulate it. We should have it run our schools now. You know, we've, we've kind of been drinking this Kool-Aid that sees it as the kind of be all and end all for creating a great society rather than a useful but potentially dangerous um, institution that needs to be very carefully regulated so that we can get the best from it without getting the worst. I mean, one, what I like to say is kind of like a lawnmower. You know, a lawnmower, a power lawnmower, it's very good. You you can cut your lawn and, and it does a very good job. But if you go inside and try to vacuum your carpet with the lawnmower, it's not going to lead to good results. And I think the corporation's the same. It does do some things well, but it's also quite dangerous. And especially when we don't regulate it and when we believe it can be doing things that Typically, I think governments and public agencies do better, and that's the moment we're in. Yeah. So you said how like, there's there's no one really to take responsibility for some of the, the things that the corporations do. I'd like to just jump into the the head of a CEO for a bit. So what's going through the CEO's head, and you know, and to what limit are they responsible, and what's governing their decisions now, and if they were somehow held responsible, how it might actually change their decision making process. Right. Well, I mean, I think, you know, if you had a legal system where uh, CEOs and top managers were responsible for whatever happened in their departments, whether they knew about it or not, then you would have a very different system than the one we have today. The problem today is it's very difficult to go after any particular person real person, human being, in a, in a management position or a director because we have this thing known as the corporate veil. And the corporate veil basically says what we do is we turn the corporation into a person, uh, an artificial person. So all of our legal systems in Australia and Europe and America, they treat the corporation as a person. And what that means is when things go wrong, if there's a big cock-up like an explosion, uh, on a uh, platform in like BP's, um, the legal liability is the corporate persons. It's not any of the people within, because the problem is that when you go within, it's really hard to find the one guy who screwed up. 
because corporate decision making is very diffuse, especially in a big corporation. This guy over here is doing this. This gal is doing that. And so when a prosecutor goes in and says, who was responsible for that massive explosion? You can't really find a person who was. And the CEO probably didn't even know about the decisions that were happening on the platform. Um, and, and so all the way down, everybody's incentivized to try to make more money by making it cheaper to, to get that oil out of the seabed. But And so they're cutting corners and this and that, but nobody is making the big decision. You know, okay, now we're going to do something really risky and that's going to lead to an explosion. So the law goes in and it can't find anybody to hold liable. And so it can it, but and it can't hold the shareholders liable because they have what's called limited liability. So by this sort of wrap it out of the hat magic trick, by saying we are calling this thing a person, we can then say that person now suffers all the liability and all the real people who are investing in that person and who are running that person avoid liability. And so it's a big machine that basically ensures no real person ends up being responsible for the cock-ups that happen. Well, the other thing, I guess, so we talked about, you sort of said, you know, there, obviously there are positives of corporations. And one of the, the things you mentioned is that, yes, it is a really good way to pull a whole lot of money from a whole bunch of different people to get some big, big projects done. Uh, and you yeah, they're like crowdfunding. Yeah, exactly. They're, they're like the first crowdfunding projects. Yeah, exactly. One, I guess one of the other things that you know you, you talk about, you know, you talk about the, the privatization of these these governments previously providing public goods and things. I guess a, maybe another devil's advocate question is that uh, you know, having maybe spoken to someone like John Perkins, the Confessions of an Economic Hitman, is maybe the is the government, um, you know, are they efficient? Are they uh, you know, wholly transparent, or are they corrupt as well, and maybe aren't doing things that are in the public interest? Right. So it's very easy to point to different governments, whether you're in Australia, Canada, the United States, Zimbabwe, Kenya, uh, Spain, France. You can point to governments and say those are there's corruption. They're not doing a good job. Um, they may do some things well, but they're not doing other things well. And you can point to corporations and say, you know, they make pretty good iPhones or they can do this well and they're not doing that well. So we can look at the behavior. But what I I mean, I'm primarily uh, a lawyer. And so what I like to do is I like to look at the institutional structure. Um, and when I look at a government, what I see is at least as an institution, at least as an ideal, we have an institution that's democratically accountable. It's built into it. It has to be in a democracy that is publicly accountable. That is um, that ultimate mission is to serve the public good. Now, you know, before you jump in and say, but they don't do that, you know, that's fine. But, but let me just make the argument. So but the ultimate purpose of a government is to serve the public good. So when I think about and the ultimate purpose of a corporation is not to serve the public good. It's to serve the private interests mm -hmm. of the shareholders. So if we move away from just asking, you know, what about this and what about that on the ground and look at the institutions, if we want to have a democracy, if we believe in being governed by an institution that is designed to serve the public good rather than private wealth, then we should be trying to make governments better. 
We can't make corporations better because when corporations are working at their very best doing their job, they're serving their shareholders' interests, not the interests of citizens or the environment. So let's try to make government better. And one of the ways to make government better is let's try to detach government from the influence of these corporations that want to make governments work in their interest. And so that's the project for me. Um, other people, you know, say, oh, well, we should make companies more socially responsible, more sustainable. I think that's a dead end. Um, I, I think what we need to do is get governments to require them to be socially responsible and sustainable through regulation rather than asking them to do it on their own because they're not made to do that. Again, it's like asking a lawnmower to vacuum the rug. Yeah. So I guess a lot of your, your book talks about maybe it's the system's fault rather than the individual's and how we can change the system. But is there much that's attribute, attributable, I don't know if that's a word, to I guess the individual and the brain and are we actually selfish in general? And if we, if we made a system that brought out the best in us, would we tend to be more selfish or do you think we could actually have a world where, where we're not selfish and we're looking for... Um, you know, mutual independence and win-win between government and private and everything. Is, is, it, is it actually possible the way we've evolved? I think human beings are incredibly complicated. I mean, you, you know, you see some of these disasters happening and the altruism and the generosity of people in the wake of an earthquake or a flood or a hurricane or whatever is is unbelievable. And you just look in day-to-day -day life. You look at, you know, the person who, who stops and, and gets out of the car and helps uh, an elderly person across the street. I mean, we're, we're very complicated beings. And, and I'm not a psychologist and I'm not much of a philosopher, but I do talk about this a little bit in the corporation that – we're complicated beings and how, how we actually are, how we are in our sort of dominant behaviors is very much dependent on what's happening around us. So if we're part of a system that says we should be selfish, that says that virtue is in, you know, screwing everybody else and doing the best you can and making the most money you can. That happiness is in getting pleasure out of an iPhone or gaming or, or whatever. That um, the kinds of communal bonds that, you know, have sustained societies for thousands of years don't really matter. What matters is whether you're sitting and, you know, clicking on, on your Facebook. Like if we have and, and a whole advertising industry telling us that, you know, we'll be happy if we buy this or that product or we won't smell if we buy this product or we'll be acceptable if we buy. I mean, if we have all of that coming at us, that's going to draw on a particular part of us that's more narcissistic, that's more self-interested, that's more self-loathing in some respects. Um, and and so so there's this, this strange kind of uh, dialectical, to use a term, relationship between who we are and what kind of a community we're a part of. Um, and, and so if the, if the question is, are we capable of creating societies that are based more on sharing, more on community, less on individualism, We've had those societies and we have them today. I mean, you know, some, I, I think Canada is much more like that, or even Australia is much more like that, say, than the United States. I mean, we consciously in Canada or European countries like Sweden, Norway, where there's a conscious effort to um, create laws and policies that bring out 
a side of us and that reward incentivize a side of us that isn't that selfish being. So, you know, I'm very optimistic about human nature. I'm skeptical about the kinds of structures we create that end up pulling out the worst rather than the mm. best of us. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. You gave us, uh, as you said, a bit of optimism, a bit of glimmer of hope there. So we want to dive back into some more evil stuff um, <laughs> that corporations do. Uh, you talked in the corporation as we sort of change gears and segue towards, I guess, how businesses target children. You talk about the, the nag factor in that, you know, somewhere between 20 to 40% of purchases wouldn't have happened unless kids nagged their parents and you talk about the different types of parents and i guess how do how do corporations get kids to nag their parents yeah. well i mean i i've since the corporation i've written another book mm. um called childhood under siege how big business targets children which is all about the the sort of kid corporate interface but yeah the nag factor is really interesting and and for me it was a really good example of just how extreme the sort of ethical deficiency of corporations can be that they scientifically you know they hire psychologists and they scientifically figure out how can we run an ad that's going to get a child to nag in the most effective way and so what they what they came what they realized is that the kind of nagging where a child just goes, I want it, I want it, I want it, is not very persuasive on a parent. A parent will just say, shut up, you know, yeah. and, and leave me alone. Um, but the kind of nagging that says, you know, oh, well, if I had that, I'd be able to use it in my school project and I'd get a better mark, you know. I mean, that's really persuasive on parents. And so what companies did, and we talk about this in that section of the book, and it's in the movie as well. We talked to the person in the movie who invented this whole thing. Uh, and we actually asked her, do you ever have an ethical problem with this? And she says, no, we're just trying, you know, I have no problem with this. We're just trying to move product. You know? seem pretty happy with and, yourself, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and so it's like, there it is, right? I mean, that's the point we're trying to make. Um, but, you know, from another perspective, it's quite diabolical that these young kids' minds are, are, are being assaulted with this manipulative stuff that, you know, people with PhDs have studied them at, like, like they're rats and figured out, oh, how can we best manipulate them? Here it is. Let's do it. There's some, other... <laughs> there some other wild stuff that you talked about, uh, you know, about how Big Pharma and how they're almost getting kids addicted to sugar and caffeine and maybe that's causing yeah. this, um, you know, obesity crisis we've got, but also, you know, prescribing just meds and stuff that probably they don't need. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think it's a it's a huge issue. And again, you know, I don't take the position that uh, that psychotropic meds are always inappropriate for children and teens. I mean, you know, I'm not a doctor and there are obviously cases where they're they're important. But what I look at in um, in the last book that I wrote is the degree to which the uh, pharmaceutical companies effectively game the need um, for these drugs, and yet they support research that that kind of leads to overdiagnosis, to overmedication. And I look at a lot of physicians, a lot of psychiatrists, a lot of experts, and the work they've done, and the research. And you know, it, it's fairly uncontroversial, I think, at least among many 
psychiatrists and medical scientists um, that there is a bit of a crisis in, in children being over-medicated and over-prescribed and often in ways that are dangerous. And when you look at it from the corporate side, what you see are is just a, a, a very large marketing machine uh, that's being aimed at physicians, that's being aimed at parents, that is uh, really trying, and often that is operating illegally. There are, in the book, many instances where they're actually breaching regulations that say they're not supposed to be marketing these drugs for kids, but they do it anyways. And it's a huge market, and the profits have been huge. Uh, and I think there are some really horrible results. Um, again, you know, there's a need for better regulation here. There's a need for being realistic and saying, if you're a pharmaceutical company, just like if you're a toy company, why wouldn't you come up with ways to nag kids as much? Why should you care about kids? That's not in your institutional being. And if you're a pharmaceutical company, why should you care about kids? You want to sell as many drugs as you can. That's your job. That's your institutional incentive. Yeah. So this big marketing machine we've, we've created, Joel, is it, do we actually have free will, any free will at the end of the day or are they become that good at marketing products? So I think at the start of the movie you say you know, they control what we eat, what we wear, and they pretty much a lot of our lives. Do we actually have this, this free will at the end of the day or are they that good well, at yeah. I mean, again, you know, you're you're really interested in the these deep issues about about who we are. Of course, we have free will. Yeah. Of course, we do. But I mean, you know, the um, oh, I'm forgetting his name. The fellow who just won the Nobel Prize, uh, who wrote the book with Cass Sunstein, uh, won a Nobel Prize in economics, and his, he won it for his insight that people don't make rational choices that the whole assumption in economics that people make rational choices is wrong and and that we actually need to think about the kinds of things that economics think about taking account of the fact and not presuming that people will choose rationally and marketers and advertisers have known this forever that you know there are two sides in our brain we have a right hemisphere that's not really rational and a left hemisphere that is and they're kind of always at war with each other and, and i mean some of the choices that i make i i, I you know i'm in a store, I'm in the lineup, and I see a candy bar, and I know it's bad for me, but there it is, and it's got this shiny yellow wrapper, and I buy it and eat it. You know, I mean, it's not a rational choice. I have free will. I could say no, but there's a strong desire in me to have that candy bar. And and so, so you know, of course we have free will, but we're not always in our rational selves and that's where marketers and advertisers can make their entrance and i think when you're talking about children uh, they haven't yet developed their rational sense yet so they are highly vulnerable to being to being hit with that kind of stuff and when you then add in the factor that our online world our smartphones our tablets kids having those when they're much younger and the very um, uh, the, 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 the almost addictive, uh, you know, gaming and, and all this stuff and Facebook that's being thrown at them. I mean, we're sitting ducks and, and that's the culture we're living in. So, yes, we have free will, but we also live in a in a very sort of uh, thick um, uh, culture 
of of being inundated with ideas about who we should be, what we should be like, what makes us good people, what we desire, and having our desires always tickled and tapped. For sure, and it's interesting some of the things you say because another another book we've done, an author we spoke to is uh, Dan Ariely, predictably irrational, saying those things. Uh, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, it's not we're not rational. <laughs> you know, there's these things that we seem to do that don't aren't in our own best interests. I guess you, you right. said that you know kids are you know younger and younger they're having access to phones and tablets and the internet and seeing all these marketing messages and you know seeing sex and violence and mayhem and all this sort of stuff. How how can we protect our kids? Is it possible to and should we? I, you know, I think that is the that's the the big question. I mean, and that's where we feel in some ways so helpless. And I can say this as a parent. I mean, the reason why I wrote uh, the childhood book was out of watching my two kids grow up. I mean, they were sort of going through their their preteen years when I was writing that book. Um, and uh, you know, when we look at so many things, when we look at climate change, when we look at the culture our kids are living in, when we look at war, when we look at all these things, the environment degrading, species extinction, we feel so helpless and we say, what can we do? And and so, you know, the question about what we do in the kid thing is just, to me, a more specific question about what do we do in general? And, you know, I... I don't think there's any magic bullet out there. I think that we need to be realistic about the ambitions that corporations have for our children, about what they want to do to them. And we need to think about how to best address that. I mean, one way to address it is regulation. Um, you know, we but regulation, yeah, but you don't want to shut down entirely, you know, uh, online gaming or, or Facebook or any of these things. So so we start to think about ways that how can government work with companies? How can governments create rules for companies? How can governments create incentives through taxation? I mean, tobacco is a great example of that. Tobacco is very heavily taxed. Uh, in order to disincentivize people buying it. So, you know, we have all these different tools through which we as citizens can operate through the governments we elect to try to create more balance in society. And, you know, and so I don't have an answer that is kind of one size fits all, but I think that's the direction we have to go in. Yeah. In terms of solutions, I really like in the book you mentioned how corporations should only exist if their primary purpose is to serve the public good. So you wrote the book, I guess, over a decade ago. So since then, has there been any push toward that? Because it, it seems so different to what we actually have. And, and how can we go about, say, the individuals listening, how can they, what can they actually do to help bring about these kind of huge changes that we, we might need to see? Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, my basic argument in the book is that the corporation was created as a public policy tool. Uh, You know, the corporation is nothing more than or less than a set of laws that basically deem a company to be a person, uh, deem shareholders not to be liable for things that that person does and um, create the capacity of uh, firms and entrepreneurs to finance their projects. So that's all the corporation is. It's not a thing. It's a set of relationships. And the reason why governments created that 
The only reason governments can create anything is in order to serve the public interest. That's the job of government. So, so I guess the privileges and rights that are enjoyed by shareholders and corporations are ultimately justified because they serve the public good. So where I go with that argument is to suggest that if we think about it in those terms, rather than thinking that these corporations are just ends in themselves that should be left alone to make as much money as they can, um, if we think about it in the former terms, then we might have different answers to questions about how and whether they should be regulated, um, how and whether we should let them do things like run schools and, and water systems and other public goods. So that's, that's the argument. Now you ask about the last 15 years. When I look at the last 15 years, what I see is all the stuff I talked about in the book and we talked about in the film getting worse. And which is why I'm, in, I'm currently in the middle of shooting another film mm. uh, called The Corporation 2. So I figure if Harry Potter and Pirates of the Caribbean can have sequel, we can too. So, so we're about, we're just getting started on shooting that. We've raised the funding. I'm writing the book. Um, I won't spoil the plot of that, but suffice it to say, it's, um, it will address a lot of the questions, these great questions that you've been asking. Um, but now in a contemporary environment where I think some of our predictions like climate change getting worse, like uh, corporations becoming more dominant in society have come true. Um, and, uh, and now we have to deal with them. Nice. My next question was going to be what's uh, what projects you're working on at the moment, but obviously there's, there's our answer. When when can we uh, expect the the new uh, the new version? So we're thinking the film will premiere either in September 2018 or uh, January 2019, and uh, <clears throat> the book um, hopefully will be out shortly before or after that. And I'd be happy to talk to you again when that happens. Definitely can. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah definitely can. Definitely can. So, is there any any books that that you recommend that have been influential on on your life or 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 some of the work that you've you've uh, created? You know, it's funny. I mean, the books that have been most. I mean, there are the obvious um, people who I find influential Noam Chomsky I find influential and then there are many obscure academics who you'll never have heard of who write quite sort of technical books but that helped me a great deal um, I, I'm also very uh, there are many organizations out there corporate accountability international and others that do great research work but the books that are most influential on me are novels actually um, and, you know, the reason for that, I think, is that the project I'm involved in, though it's nonfiction, um, is really trying to get at what's true and what's good about being human, about being in communities, about being in societies, and about how we can overcome uh, these very sort of dark places that we seem capable of going um, and somehow embrace the light. And so... You know, so if you ask me what books are most influential, it's going to be Tolstoy's Resurrection, for example, or it's going to be a book, a Canadian book I just read called Indian Horse, or it's going to be these novels that really try to grapple with the human condition uh, and, and try to give us some insight and also some hope. See, fantastic. That was phenomenal. And we've got some, so many more questions, I guess. Uh, looking forward to getting some of those answered in corporation two and uh probably speak to you in, in a year give or take 
Looking forward to it. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much, Joel. Okay, bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed that interview. We just wanted to remind you, we've read some bloody good books this season so far, and you can win them all. Yep, so we've got a, a prize. So there's three ways you can enter this, and it is absolute bonanza. Yeah, man, it is a bonanza, you know. <laughs> Seven habits of highly effective people. If you can grow rich, start with why, to name just a few of the 48 books that you can win. So you can firstly uh, fill out the survey at whatyouwillearn.com slash survey. Very short, two minutes. Yep, and you can see that in the show notes of all our episodes. The, the second one is leave a review for us. Yep, we'll find that. And the third way is to just buy a book. Yep. Have a read, send us a picture of the book or the receipt or something at uh, podcast at whatyouwillearn.com. And yeah, that's it. You can enter three times, three yep, chances three to times. win. Each time, probably maximum three minutes time investment. Yep. And you could land 50 fucking good books which you can use to sell or give us gifts yeah good shit